Supreme in wisdom as in power the rock of ages stands, though him you cannot see nor trace the working of his hands. In this passage we attempt to trace the working of your hands, the hands of the rock of ages. Father, we pray that we might see something of you as you plant your feet in the storm, that we might see that in this book that doesn't give your name, that you are the one who reigns and the one who has the concerns of his people in his hand. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, Mordecai had said to Esther, perhaps you've come to royal position for such a time as this. And it's not going to take long for Mordecai's words to be proved true. Haman's plans to destroy the Jews is gathering place. And in chapter 4 we read how Esther was originally unaware of this scheme, but was alerted to it by Mordecai. And apparently, just in the space of one day, Esther moves from merely being Mordecai's protege to taking responsibility herself for her people. Notice at the beginning of chapter 5, there's a three-day pause. That was the three days of the fast that um, Esther had suggested that all the people should uh, hold. And then after those three days, Esther takes action. Wine, women and parties are what Xerxes is interested in. And Esther knows her king and knows that's what she'll, and so that's what she'll provide. And events move at a tremendous pace. There's words like hurry and quickly and as soon as. All the way through this passage, they take the speed. And as I say, it seems that the whole crisis lasts only a couple of days. But in these two days, quite momentous events take place. So I'd like to pull the text apart a little bit as it were, go through it in a bit more detail. Uh, this is not, I hope, so that we can sort of make an academic judgment over it, not even really so that we can get a grasp of the text, as so much as to help the text get a grasp on us, that um, we might see how this cleverly constructed story and it is cleverly constructed, put together by a, a master narrator, a master storyteller, um, how it is meant to lead us to answer the question, who is the unnamed God and what does he do uh, for his people? So the, this key section divides really into five parts. First part in chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, which I've titled there, Esther puts on royalty. And then we read what happens when Haman goes home. And then we mean, meanwhile, what's happening back at the palace. And then Haman goes home again. And then we get to Esther's second banquet and the end game, as we might call it. Do notice the structure there. It is one of these Hebrew sandwiches that we often find in Hebrew literature. So a chiasm is the technical term. 
And normally at the centre of this sandwich, you find some important spiritually uplifting uh, passage. But what we find at the centre of this sandwich in Esther is political farce, frankly. It's a kind of Persian yes minister, isn't it? It has all the, all the hallmarks of farce, you know, weird coincidences. People who um, don't have quite the vital piece of information that they need and therefore may land up making the wrong decision. And it all happens at a tremendous pace, so nobody really has time to think. People are sort of whirled round in the events as they take place. So we should think that perhaps this central part is perhaps the most important part, but a lot of this, of course, is about Esther herself, although she's noticeably absent from this central <laughs> section. So um, we'll go through the text a bit at a time, and then at the end I'll try and draw our thoughts together with some reflections on the test text. So first of all, Esther. She has been reminded by Mordecai that she is, after all, the queen. And perhaps she better start taking that responsibility seriously. And so, in chapter 5, verse 1, that's precisely what she starts to do. Most of the English translations suggest, translate it something like uh, Esther put on royal clothes or royal garments or royal robes or something like that. But in actual fact, in the original Hebrew, there is no message of, no, sorry, mention of clothes. Literally, what the Hebrew says is that um, Esther put on her royals or something like that. And um, the meaning seems to me not so much that. Esther put on her royal robes as that Esther robed herself in her royalty. She was going to come before the king as queen. And of course the storyteller, the narrator here, has in mind that appearance, or rather non-appearance, of Vashti before Xerxes. Vashti had started life as a queen, a noble woman with a crown, and yet she had been summoned and treated like a concubine, and she had refused to come. And because of that, she had um, been put aside, possibly even lost her life. We don't know whether she was executed or not, but certainly she was removed from her position as queen. In contrast, Esther started life, really, to be honest, as a concubine, didn't she? That's how her career started. She was just one of these virgins who were moved into the harem. But she had been raised to the position of queen. And now she's going to live it. Now she is truly regal. Vashti had refused to come to the king when she was summoned, but Esther was going to come uninvited, but she was going to come as queen. And there are other contrasts here too in this first section. Xerxes, you notice, has the trappings of royalty. Xerxes is the one with the throne, the one with the palace, the one with the golden scepter, this uh, sort of golden stick, which is a 
a symbol of royal authority. I, I think our own queen has one. I don't think she uses it much, but there is one. But it's really, the narrator is telling us here, it's not really Xerxes who is royal here, it is Esther. Up to now, with just one exception, Esther is not given the title Queen Esther. She's described as queen sometimes, but the only occasion on which she is actually given her full title of Queen Esther is when she reported to the king the, the plot of, that Mordecai had uncovered. And that's the only time when she's given her full title as Queen Esther. It's as if the narrator is saying, well, up to this point, that's really the only queenly thing she's done. But now, in ch chapter 5, verse 2, and particularly in chapter 5, verse 12 and onwards, in the story, she's usually, not on every occasion, but very frequently, given her full title. From now on, she is Queen Esther. So now on, the uh, narrator is saying she's deserving of the title. She is now, she had the title, she'd, had, she'd been queen for about five years, but now at this stage she's grown into it. Now she's really queen. There is, of course, one critical moment. <coughs> will the king accept her, or will he reject her and have her killed? But Xerxes sees Esther in her royal beauty and remembers who he's been ignoring and neglecting. Remember, he hadn't summoned her for 30 days. He'd been too busy with his drinking pal, Haman. But he sees Esther and realizes what had been missing, remembers what had been missing. And so he holds out his scepter and grants her a royal audience in verse 2. And from that point on, Esther is largely in control of events. Although, of course, not without considerable amount of help from divine providence. But it is Esther now who makes the pace, who drives the pace, as it were. Notice that um, Esther has already had the banquet prepared. She doesn't just go on the off chance and thinks, oh gosh, what did I better do? She's already got the banquet ready. It's all set out ready in the banqueting hall. Unlike Haman's plot, who let things fester for, as I said, for 11 months, and that was really going to be his great mistake. Esther here pushes things on. She leaves no opportunity for things to go sour. Xerxes and Haman are hustled into the feast. Did you notice that in verse 5? Bring Haman quickly. Liberally plied with wine, Xerxes is bewitched by his queen. And he makes the usual sort of rash promise that kings make on these occasions. Anything up to half my kingdom. Surely this is the time for Esther to strike. And it looks as though she's going to, doesn't it? And she starts off, my wish and my request is... But then she stops. Something stops her. We don't know whether it was her original plan all along or whether she suddenly thought, no, this isn't the right moment. We're not told. But something told her, no, this is not the moment. I need to delay a little longer. 
So she says, my wish and my request is that you come back tomorrow and then I'll tell you what I, what I want. And of course that just gives even more time for Xerxes to stew over it as he's going to do. Come back tomorrow when the party and the action will continue. And then we read of the first time when Haman goes home and a series of coincidences or divine providences are building up to Haman's downfall. So Haman leaves the palace in high spirits, puffed off even more than usual by the Queen's attention. But then in the out as he passes through the outer office on his way home, he sees Mordecai, his enemy. And there's another irony here, isn't it? He doesn't wonder why Mordecai is there. In spite of his high office, he's not noticed the messages that Esther and Mordecai have been passing to each other. And of course that's going to prove to be a crucial failure of intelligence. His pride and his overconfidence are leading him to fall. And he can tolerate Mordecai no longer, it seems. He can't wait for the 11 months to run out and Mordecai to meet his fate with the rest of the Jews. As long as Mordecai is still there in the outer office, he cannot be happy. And so his buoyant mood collapses and he goes home to have a a whinge to his household. So he does boast of the, as if he's trying to bolster himself of all his riches and honours that he's had, but he says, it doesn't mean a thing to me while Mordecai the Jew still lives. Notice that he does tell his wife and his friends that Mordecai is a Jew. Even that is ironical because Zeresh, his wife at least, has not forgotten the ancient feud between the Amalekites and the Jews. And um, that is going to, she's going to bring it up again later, but when it's too late. This was perhaps Zeresh's last chance to save her husband from his folly, but instead of doing that, what does she do? She eggs him on. The 75 feet, the, the 50 cubits of verse 14, the commentators suggest, is probably a figure of speech rather than being intended to be taken very literally. It's rather like one might say that a footballer might say, I, I kicked a goal, but I missed by miles. Because he's not really missed by miles. The meaning probably is that this is going to be something mega, you know, something you can't miss it. It's going to tower over the whole city. It's unlikely it really was 75 feet high, and that's hardly very practicable, but it's going to be something that's visible from all over the city that you can't miss. This execution of Mordecai is going to be the political event of the year. He's going to be completely humiliated. Only they haven't actually built it yet. But Haman is entranced by this idea. Yes, let's do it now. By this time, it's probably getting towards evening. Work up, the workmen have probably all gone home for their evening meal or something. But no, get them out. I want it built now. Uh, can't, can't we build it tomorrow? No, I want it now. If I'd wanted it tomorrow, I would have ordered it tomorrow. That's Haman's attitude, isn't it? But, but the timber yard will be shut. I don't care. Wake up the manager. I want it now. And so eventually he gets everything happening and the workmen set off to get to work 
And so Haman, again, totally impatient, heads back, straight back to the palace because he still has to get permission from Xerxes to hang Mordecai. So here's Haman on his way back to the palace. And meanwhile, what's happened? What's happening back at the palace? Well, Xerxes is having a bad night. He can't sleep. I don't know, perhaps he was hoping that Esther was going to stay the night, but uh, she's gone back to her quarters. Sleep eludes him. What's to be done? Summon a concubine? No, no, not with Esther filling his senses. What's to be done? I know. I mean, I am the, like Haman. Well, people have got to do my building. Wake up the secretaries. But they're all asleep. Don't care. Wake up the secretaries. We'll have readings from the royal records. What we don't know is whether he was really interested or perhaps this was his equivalent of counting sheep. We, we get the impression that Xerxes was not really very interested in administration. He probably thought if they, if they read the records out, it'll be so boring, I'll go back to sleep. But, um, but actually, that's not what happens. A particular passage catches his attention. And now he's fully awake. Now he can't, really can't sleep. He's reminded of that assassination plot that Mordecai had foiled. And he realises that Mordecai had not received the elevation that the knighthood or whatever the Persian equivalent was that he should have got for that service. And now impulsive King Xerxes is in He's in a hurry too. He's not going to wait either. This has to be done now. So Haman has rushed back to the palace to get permission to hang Mordecai but Xerxes is still king and his plan takes precedence who's in, the, who's in the palace? Well, Haman's just come back great, Haman, yeah nobody knows how to put on a good show better than Haman just the man I need and of course because Xerxes is the king he gets the word in before Haman can come out with his plea about hanging Mordecai Xerxes speaks to Haman, what, come up with a plan. What can we do to honour the one that the king wants to honour? And of course, crucially, Xerxes omits one crucial fact, doesn't he? The name of the, who the honoree is. Actually, the, the commentators and interpreters have a field day with this. Is it, was it just a, 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 an omission on Xerxes' part, or was Xerxes actually beginning to tire of Haman already, and was he deliberately setting up? setting him up we, we don't know but either way he omits this rather vital piece of information and so because Haman again puffed up by his arrogance gets the wrong end of the stick entirely and um, thinks that Xerxes is planning something for him he doesn't ask himself if this makes any sense why would Xerxes suddenly be planning this honour for him in the middle of the night um, he assumes it's for him and he makes his proposal. And even this proposal is quite strange or at least quite special.
Because what Haman suggests here amounts almost to a proclamation of royalty. A robe the king has worn. A horse the king has ridden, and even with a royal crest on the horse. And a nobleman to accompany it. Yeah, that's just what we need. Because normally if, you, if you're going to have some sort of royal honour, it takes weeks and weeks to plan it, doesn't it? But actually there's nothing here that's going to take very long to do. You've just got to go and get the horse out of the stable, go and get the, uh, the, the butler to get the uh, robe out of the cupboard. It can be done now. And of course that's exactly what Xerxes wants. Yes, Haman, that's a great plan. You go and carry it out. And of course now, of course, is when he tells Haman who is to be honoured in this way. And of course it's Mordecai. And so Mordecai had come to the palace hoping to humiliate... Sorry, Haman had come to the palace hoping to humiliate Mordecai. But instead it's Haman who is humiliated. And he'd come hoping to hang Mordecai on the gallows. Uh, But the gallows remains empty, still waiting its first use. And um, Haman had hoped to make Mordecai's downfall, as I say, the political event of the year. But instead, as people are just waking up for breakfast, there is this royal parade. And they look out and think, what on earth is going on? And they see that Mordecai is being paraded through the streets on a royal horse. This is the political event that everybody sees, that Mordecai is not humiliated, but is elevated, if not quite to royal status, he has given the honour that he deserved for his, uh, for his loyalty to the king. And of course, Haman is completely devastated. So much so that he covers his head up and and goes home again. So this time he goes back in complete shame and despondency and goes and talks to his wife and friends again. And in... uh, Verse 13 of chapter 6, you notice, they deliver their warning altogether too late. Oh, Mordecai is a Jew, is he? Oh, well, in that case, you're toast, basically, is what, what they say. Just what Haman wanted to hear. They remember, Zeresh remembers now that long string of Amalekite defeats. One thing Esther can't have known, of course, is that these events were the reason, real, the real reason for Esther's 24-hour delay. The hidden God of the book has started Haman's downfall. But the events rush on. Esther's busy at the palace getting her banquet organised. And just as the officials had summoned Vashti to a feast she didn't want to go to, so Haman is summoned to a feast he probably doesn't want to go to by this stage, but he has no choice, really. They they just rush him to the feast. It says in verse 14 of chapter 6, 
lost it. Um, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Everything happened so fast. And so we get to the end game, Esther's final banquet. The second day here probably means the, the second day of the banquet. In other words, the, 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 uh, that's, this is the, the, the banquet is the second banquet. Not that that banquet lasted two days. The, the NIV translates it that way, and I think that's what most commentators suggest it means, that, these, that this is the second day, in the sense it's the second banquet that Esther had planned. <coughs> once again, Esther plies the king with wine, and once again, he makes his exaggerated office. Clearly, this queen wants something, but what on earth is it? By this time, you must be completely hooked, must be completely intrigued. But this time, there's no delay. Esther gets straight to the point. What she wants is quite simply life for her people and for herself as she burns her boats, as it were, and identifies herself with them. In fact, she puts it first, in a sense, doesn't she? She says, life for me and my people. Grant me my life, this is my partition, and spare my people, this is my request. She puts herself at the head of the queue, in a sense, as the one who is going to be destroyed by Haman's plot. That's what she wants, is life for herself and for her people. Even so, she has to be a bit careful, doesn't she? She has to put the right spin on it. It's no good accusing Xerxes himself of destroying her people. That wasn't, that's never going to fly, is it? What she has to do is carefully drive a wedge between Xerxes and Haman. She has to put the blame squarely where it belongs, on Haman's shoulders. And so she refers to the triple wording of the edict. Do you remember the edict had talked about destruction, killing and annihilation for the people? And she quotes it word for word. <coughs> That's what Haman's edict has said. Destruction, killing, annihilation. And she refers even obliquely to Haman's bribe, doesn't she? Without kind of actually uh, accusing Xerxes of taking a bribe. But she says, my people have been sold. Somebody's paid some money. But of course, when you sell people normally, you would sell them as slaves. But no, not as slaves. Even if my people had been sold as slaves, well, that might have been tolerated. But it's not that. My people have been sold for death. Men and women and children, all have been sold into death. The edict is presented as a treasonous plot to destroy herself as queen, to destroy Mordecai, a loyal official who had saved the king's life, and, a loyal, and many loyal citizens of the empire. But as yet, she's not named Haman, Haman as Esther deliberately builds the tension. She needs Xerxes to 
separate himself from this policy. She needs him to, the condemnation must come from Xerxes himself. And it works, doesn't it? The volatile king is absolutely furious in verse 5. Who's done this? Who could do such a thing? Who could try and get rid of my queen? Which, of course, is not exactly what Haman had intended, but that was an implication of it. And now Esther reveals her target. And in fact, it's not, it's not really a sentence in the Hebrew. The, the NIV kind of smooths it over. But I gather that what the Hebrew says, it says, This man, adversary, enemy, villain, Haman, he's named. And so Xerxes is forced to choose, isn't he? He's forced to choose between his erstwhile friend and his queen. But actually, now there's no contest. Xerxes feels totally betrayed by Haman. By this stage, he's entirely on Esther's side. As the narrator puts it in verse 6, it's the royal couple versus Haman now. Xerxes is so angry, he goes outside to walk it off. In fact, it's so angry that he even puts his wine mug down. Did you notice that? <laughs> Takes a lot to separate Xerxes from his wine. <laughs> but he's so angry, he goes out in the garden to walk it off. Haman stays behind, and that's his last mistake. He stays, it says, to beg Esther... But whatever his motive is, he makes this final breach of court protocol, palace protocol, doesn't he? Apparently the protocol of such things in those days that if you wanted to speak to any member of the harem, you had to, you had to I think it was somebody, I read somewhere, something like seven paces away, seven steps away. You weren't even allowed to, pre, to come close to any member of the harem, certainly not the queen. And in touching the Queen's couch, for whatever reason, is really putting the last nail in his coffin. And this, of course, is the last coincidence that finally finishes him off. Xerxes comes back in and sees Haman leaning on the Queen's couch. He immediately accuses Haman of assaulting his Queen who was given no chance to speak even if she wanted to. What do we find? Haman has no friends here, does he? No, he has friends out in the country and and home, but Haman has no friends left in the palace. In fact, you notice the officials jump at the chance to get rid of this hated usurper who's sort of taken over the reins of the palace. Clear that the officials hate him. As soon as the word comes out of the king's mouth, they cover his face for execution. And then uh, Harbona just conveniently remembers that uh, gallows that Haman had built. Harbona is one of the king's, um, one of the seven chief eunuchs who had been sent for Vashti in chapter one one of the officials in the palace. Well, it's, to be honest, it's a lynch mob, isn't it? But 
<laughs> Haman is given no chance to def- no trial, no chance to defend himself, and yet one cannot deny that in this case, at least justice is done. The officials can't wait to get rid of Haman. They act as quickly as they can before the king changes his mind again. They know their king. They know how volatile he is. So they make sure that it happens quickly. And so Haman is hanged or possibly impaled. People argue about what, exactly what the punishment was, whether it was hanged with a rope or whether it was actually impalement on the pole. But whatever it is, the humiliation, the death that had been planned for Mordecai goes to Haman instead. The king has seen Haman's treason for himself and justice has been done. What a tremendous story, what a pace there is to it. What, how it's cleverly, it's told. What are we made to make of this black farce? What are we supposed to learn? Well, that central passage of the um, story, of course, is those coincidences. Xerxes' bad night, Haman coming back into the palace at the crucial time and the secretary reading those, uh, the story or the, the, fact, what, the fact that Mordecai had not received the knighthood he was entitled to. What is to be made of this? It's surely not that these are just coincidences. But there is a God, a hidden God, God who sometimes hides his working and yet who is in control of these things. It's not Xerxes who raises people up and pulls them down. It's not Haman who does it. It's not Mordecai. It's not even Esther. She is uh, noticeably absent from this central bit of the story. It is the hidden God, the God who rules in the affairs of men, who overrules in these things. So God protects his people through these providences. But not only through these providences, it is also true that when God wants to save, generally speaking, he does it through human agency. He provides a a hero, or in this case a heroine, a champion, the right woman in the right place at the right time. And as such, that is a picture, isn't it, of the way that God saves. Esther is a picture pointing us to Christ, to the true champion, the ultimate champion, the one who gave his life to save his people and liberate his people. That surely is the first lesson of this and the most important one. But I think there are other lessons that we can learn as well and it's worth thinking about. So secondly, we we might ask, how was Esther's transformation affected? How did she suddenly change, apparently within a, a day or so, from being a rather naive girl to this effective queen? How was it how did she obtain that grace? How was she transformed? Well, It was through the word of God, wasn't it? It was effectively through Mordecai's challenge. Do not think 
that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows that you've come to royal estate, to royal position for such a time as this. These were God's words through Mordecai to Esther. And the word of God always does what it sets out to do. And it was that really which changed her life, wasn't it? These words of God. By taking heed to that word, by identifying herself with the people of God, by putting her faith in their God, even if he's not here named, that's the way that she's ennobled and is able to take on royalty. Faith isn't a weak, easy believism. You know, we just, yeah, I agree to that in principle. Faith is transformational. And the word of God always achieves what it sets out to do. Remember those words from the book of Hebrews. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And that, of course, is why, as a church, at the centre of everything we do is preaching the word. There's all sorts of things we could do on a Sunday, on a Sunday evening, and some of them are good things to do. But at the centre, the key thing, the enabling thing, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so that's at the centre of all we do. It's sharper than a double-edged sword penetrating to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And Mordecai's words cut to Esther's heart, didn't they? Up to then she'd just been uh, sort of enjoying her life in the palace, it seems. But suddenly she realised there was more to being a queen than that. And because of her faith, she was not found wanting. The fear of the Lord, says Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. And thirdly, there is a third, perhaps more problematic, consideration that we could make. It's undoubtedly true, isn't it, that Esther made use of her knowledge of the king. She made use of her knowledge of his predilections and weaknesses to achieve her aim. She didn't just turn up in the king's throne room and blurt out her plea. She buttered the king up, as one might say. She even tantalised him a little with her feminine charm and with her uh, dissembling and not immediately saying what it was she wanted. So that he was ready when she made her accusation. He said, indeed, as I said at the beginning of this series, is politics as the art of the possible, if you like, the achievable. And it is worth asking ourselves, how ethical was this? Certainly, Paul warns us against using underhand worldly ways, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, and yet on the other hand, he wasn't averse to making use of his status as a Roman citizen, or making use of his Greek education to uh, address the people on the Areopagus. He wasn't averse to circumcising Timothy to get over the political problems of getting Timothy into Jerusalem. 
Jesus himself tells us, suddenly, to be both shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Sometimes it can perhaps be difficult to be both those things. <laughs> we should be innocent, we should renounce underhand ways, and yet it's also possible to, as somebody once said, to be so, so heavenly minded as to be no earthly use. Um, sometimes we do need to use means. And it seems to me, at least in this situation, Esther did nothing illegal or even immoral. She was simply acting with the wisdom that God had given her and with the talents and abilities that God had given her. There's no deceit involved. At most it was a little dissembling. God had provided the means, including in this case her own beauty and her insight into the king's character. And she employed what God had given her. But certainly this requires wisdom. The use of means always requires, I think, a little wisdom. It's so easy to be uh, caught up. You know, we think oh, we, we, if we had better music, perhaps, then uh, you know, people would be more able to listen to the word of God. And that's probably actually true. And yet it's so easy, isn't it, for that to become a distortion. I think the narrator is endorsing what Esther did here. I think sometimes it is right to use the means that God has provided for us to, to, to achieve the work of the kingdom. But certainly we need to pray for wisdom to do it. So I'll stop there. It's not quite the end of the book because there's still a lot of the mess to be cleaned up. And that's what the last few chapters are about. But this, of course, is the heart of the book of Esther. So, um, Chris, are you going to come out? Are we, we're having some group prayer time, are we? So if you'd like to come out and um, lead us in prayer and then organise us then, if you're... Yeah. And, uh, but we're also... Oh, we haven't sung... Sorry, quite well. We haven't sung the last song, haven't we? Sorry, you're quite, uh, quite right. Thank you.